לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. welcome our many many viewers many listeners we are so happy to have you with us we enjoy receiving your emails and feedbacks we, we just love it we love sharing Torah with you we love sharing with the Torah with each other and uh, we'll pick up on that theme later on in in our conversation because it's uh, it comes up actually in this parsha which is Kitavo and Kitavo starts with a familiar passage a passage familiar to us from the Haggadah I want to turn to you, Barry. I want you to tell us about this passage. I want you to take us into it. It's the, uh, the Bikurim passage. So, so as, as you mentioned, it is the passage about the first fruits. When the first fruits have been harvested, the farmer brings them to the priest and makes a ritual declaration, which we learn in the Mishnah Sotah must be said in Hebrew. And the declaration begins with the arresting phrase, Aramio Veda V, my father was a wandering Aramean. And throughout Jewish history, there have been different interpretations of it. But the significance for the Torah of the first fruits is that they are the concretization of the fulfillment of God's promise to our ancestors. Way back in Exodus chapter six, God promised that he would bring the people into the land and there's a discussion in the Talmud linking the key verbs to the glasses of wine that we drink at the Seder. And the last verb is this verb, God will bring us into the land. We no longer drink a glass of wine for that because after the exile, it's no longer appropriate. But the farmer bringing his first fruits is concretizing that promise that God has brought us into the land and God has done what he promised our ancestors he would do. And I was just thinking of a part of our conversation last week when Jeremy was suggesting that law embodies a narrative that this is a story that we tell and we've changed the story and the Torah itself reflects a changed story because our medieval commentators wrestled with the idea of who the RME was, whether it was Jacob, Levan, as it is in the Haggadah, or even Abraham Avinu. And who it is determines what kind of story that we tell. Jeremy, what are you making of this? I make the observation that the Bikurim, uh, ex- exactly as Barry said, that the whole point of the, of the Egypt narrative is you were lost, and I made a promise that I would rescue you from there, uh, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and I'm going to bring you to the land, the land filled with milk and honey, and now the, the, the farmer who has the first bit of the crop 
says, now I've brought veheveti, what I've been working for. And the, the Torah wants to create, wants to nurture a sense of divine and human partnership and wants to nurture a great sense of gratitude upon the farmer of what it is that he, he in the ancient world or he or she in the world today has done. Uh, look at this blessing that I have in my hands that is the product of your world, God, and my hard work. That, that combination is really deep especially in the religion of Devarim, especially in the religion of the Bible, and I think really importantly in Judaism. You know, you, you mentioned that the, there are those, in, in Exodus chapter, chapter 6, there are those five verbs, of, four, four verbs of, of, of salvation, or the fifth one, that I will bring you to the land. And so the, at one point there were five cups of the Seder, then there weren't five cups, there were only four, and the fifth one is left for Elijah to, to drink or to tell us whether or not we should drink it. it after 1948... Uh, there's quite a, a, a number of people who drink the fifth cup who feel that they have arrived. Now, I, I'm a little ambivalent about this because on the one hand, um, I, I don't think that after 1948, we should think that Jewish history is complete. I don't think that the establishment of the political state of Israel um, should be interpreted through the, the prism of uh, biblical prophecies necessarily. But I do think that it's a powerful way of enacting that uh, divine and human partnership to make a Jewish life that is really quite quite moving. It's an aspirational moment to drink the, the wine. There are a couple of things that I would uh, take from, from this passage. First of all, uh, I, I often use this passage as a, a teaching for ritual in general. This is the ritual of the first fruits. So we imagine the pilgrim coming with his, with his basket, he's bringing the, the first fruits, and he makes a statement, makes a declaration. And, and all ritual has to have that component to it, whether it's a life cycle event, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a brit milah, whatever. And, and, you know, when we're involved in this, you know, on a regular basis, whenever we're involved in this, we're always kind of centering people and telling the story and saying, why are you here? How did you get here? Look, you know, I, I, can, I can relate to my son's wedding uh, just a week and a half ago. And, and one of the great moments at that wedding, and frankly at all weddings, is to know that you're not there as a result of your own achievements. That, that you, you get to the chuppah on the basis of whatever it is. In, in our case, it's all of the different kinds of experiences, Ramah, day school, etc., and family that brings you into, into the chuppah, and that's the convergence of the narrative. And, and, and every ritual has that. It's always a gateway that has a preparatory kind of narrative, a story, and that you're here and that you're doing something. There's an action that you're doing. And that, that I think, is, is really critical in this and in almost every ritual that, that, we, that we have. Um, and, of course, the centrality here of Yitzhiyah, the, the, the redemption, the exodus. Notice, we all notice that, that Harsinai is not mentioned in here. And, yeah. and that, that's a critical point. And then notice that, of course, it becomes the, the, the real um, center of focus of the Haggadah, possibly because it was a memorized text. Yeah. I'll to make an observation. You know, I've been uh, making my way slowly through, slowly through the Mishnah. It, it, I've been doing some of the parts that one does less, less often. So I did the agricultural parts, and I just went through the sacrificial parts. And I'm reminded of the... Um, the passage in, in Mishnah Bikurim, it describes it describes this 
as such a cool uh, party, such a, uh, I, I say Mardi Gras, not, not to suggest debauchery or drunkenness or whatever, but a national party. When people would had their fields, they would tie a ribbon around the first fig that was growing or the first, or the first uh, cluster of grapes that were growing or whatever. And they would say, oh, this, this is the thing. And it would grow with a ribbon around it because it was going to go to Jerusalem. And then they would gather up and they would um, make their way to Jerusalem. And I want to just read to you real quick th this image that strikes me as so moving. And, you know, Elliot pointed out, it's, it's a thing we often say that it, it must have been a very well-known passage, which is why they, they adapted it for Passover. Um, if there was, in fact, a national ritual, it says those who lived near Jerusalem, they would bring up their, their bikurim, fresh figs and grapes, and those who lived far away, it would bring dried figs and raisins. You imagine if you had to bring all the way from, from the north, you'd have to bring dried stuff, and the ox would go in front of them, and the horns, the ox's horns were bedecked with gold and with an olive branch wreath on its head, and they would play the flute, and as they would draw close to Jerusalem, you imagine there's the procession with the, with the animal, with the gold and the music, and they would send messengers uh, that, that they're coming, and then the people from Jerusalem would come and meet them, and they would come out and say, Oh, uh, uh, Oh, thank you. Welcome, our brothers. You have made it in peace. And I just, I find this tremendously moving image of a national celebration of agricultural bounty. So what I would add here is that in the Mishnah, this is a ritual of narration, that the emphasis is on what is being recited, not as much as on the action itself. And when we get to the Haggadah, it's all about the story. Right? The Haggadah itself has a few basic actions, but basically we talk. We are Haggadahing, as it were. We are telling a story. And the reason why we're telling this story is because this is a story of redemption. The way we get to redemption is by telling a story. There's that great Hasidic story that uh, concludes uh, Gershom Shalom's book, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, where the Baal Shem Tov goes into the forest, lights a fire, and says a prayer in order to avert disaster for the Jewish people. In the next generation, the Magid of Mesrich goes into the forest and can't light the fire and tells the story. And then in the third generation, you just, Moshe Leva Sasso just goes into the forest. And finally, we get to the original Rebbe in the middle of the 19th century, who can only sit at his desk, wonder about the prayer, consider the fire that he cannot lit and say, all I have is a story and that must be enough. And that's who we are. We are a people with a story of redemption. Right. So that, that actually, I mean, it reduces everything, but look what we've made out of the story. And, and, and I mean, the irony of that Hasidic tale is that of course, you know, here the fourth generation of Hasidic leaders, masters are recalling their ancestors, but they, they themselves in that latter generation, elevated the art of storytelling to, to something magnificent. I'm not saying that, that you know, I'd rather have, I wonder, I'd ra would you rather have the experience or tell the story? You know? I, this, is, this is why this story is to me super um, ambivalent. Okay, by the way, if, if you, uh, if you, if I remember correctly, which I think I do, that in the footnote there, it says, as told to me by Shai Agnon. And, I'm going to take a guess that Agnon made up that story. Um, and it's a totally Agnonian story. Uh, and, he, and so let's say he made it up. 
Okay. So then not only is it not, a, not it's told by a story, it's, it's a story told by a storyteller who has no fire, who has no forest, who, who has no prayer, and is not himself a Hasid, but can tell the story of the storyteller. It's, it's very rich. And, and as Elliot said, there's a way in which it is haunting and evocative, and there's a way in which it's totally tragic, because we can't have experiences we can only talk about our ancestors who had experiences. So I find this a tremendously uh, challenging little story there. Well, that brings us back to Mount Sinai, because why is Mount Sinai missing in the original passage? Because Mount Sinai is a speech. It's no action. The ritual in the Bible is a ritual of action. And only when we lose the place of our redemption, when we are no longer in the promised land, but we are in exile, does the story itself, Mount Sinai, become so important for us? I think a different attack to it, which is, which is no, the event at Sinai was, of course, uh, uh, singular, singular in human history. The fact that it's not here remains a puzzle for me. I can't solve it, except to say that the sanctuary is the portable Sinai, that the sanctuary where the pilgrim is coming to is the place that represents Sinai, but there may be other other scholarly things going, on, other things going on here in terms of you know the, the holiness school, the Deuteronomy, whatever, all, my, all sorts of stuff that will get us far into the thickets. Let's go. Let's go further. Wait, 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 before we say one last thing, then we'll go on. We we are one week away. I don't want to glom on next week's parsha, but we are one week away from Moshe telling the people in a, in a perhaps different vein than what we're talking about right now. The covenant is not only with you, it's those who are here today and those who are not here today, both, which, which I think means both present and past. And, and so I do think that there is a, what, I guess what I'm going for religiously is not only to evoke something in the past, but to participate in it and to feel that it is not only, uh, you know, past people, those, those who are here, those who are not here, in my experience, can be people in the past and people in the future. Beautiful. Okay, let's do some couple, a couple of verses for some quick, quick uh, insights. Uh, verse 26, verse, uh, tw chapter 26, verse 15. Look down upon us from heavens. Bless the people of Israel. Okay, give me a quick vort on that. Give me a quick thought on look down on us. So this is a transcendent God. Much of the God of the earlier part of the Torah is more physical, more present in our midst. Now in Devarim, God is far away. And that's, uh, I, I suspect that for most of us in the modern world, that's our sense of God. That when we lack an immediacy of God, and that's what this verse speaks to, is that even if God is not immediately amongst us, he still is concerned, and he still is he's still relatable. So I have a, um, I, I'm a descendant of Kohanim, and, uh, and there's a, you know, the Spock thing, the little Kohen posture that you're supposed to, when you say Birkata Kohanim, you're supposed to put your hands that way. And in Israel, this is, this is a big part of a daily observance. Um, in, uh, in in the diaspora, pretty much only in Orthodox schools, or maybe some conservative schools, the the priests recite the blessing, but mostly in Orthodox schools on 
on the Shalosh Regalim, on the Pesach, uh, Shavuot, and Sukkot, and Yom Kippur. So you, you have this, and and I really love doing it because in I, I get in touch with a mystical sense that I'm a channel of blessing. And you're supposed to, after you recite the Birkat HaKonim, this is the verse that you recite to yourself, okay? Okay, God, I, you, you told us to do this. We have done what you have commanded us. Now, so do your part, God. We, we invoke the blessing, so give it. And there's a way of thinking about the hand gesture as making windows. Um, so making a window or a prism in which God looks at the people through through that prism, prism of love and prism of blessing. So when I say that verse, I have this image of God looking, peering at the Jewish people through the window. And uh, it's just... It's a beautiful image. Uh, I'm reminded of our teacher, uh, Rabbi Neil Gilman, he loved to do Han. And as you know, he was pretty left-wing theologically, but he had these elements of him that were very much rooted in Jewish tradition and perhaps the mystical side, as you suggested. And so you have this great thinker on one hand, insisting that he blessed the congregation on the other, which was one of the highlights of my JTS experience. Because he was from Canada. He was born in Quebec City. He had yeah. an affinity to royal things and to Quebec, you know, to tradition. You know, that's, that's what we are. Anyway. I spoke to his daughter just yesterday, in fact. So, okay. So, so another verse, uh, and I'm thinking about this because, you know, I'm, I'm in, you know, practicing the holidays, Anu mamirecha ve'ata mamireinu, and that, the source of that is in this uh, verse, mamirecha he'em ata et Adonai he'em marta hayom. Very difficult to translate that. You want to give it a shot, Jeremy? Et anai he'em marta hayom liyot. So I think that that uh, Marta, you you did this, and God did this to you. I think the, the root of it is Amar to say, and the the structure of the verb indicates a kind of causality. So he made you say, and you made him say. So it's something like you promised each other, or you swore to each other, or you perhaps. This is a, a marriage word, betroth, and the, that word troth is in English etymologically connected to truth. You promise to be faithful, mm -hmm. so so I'm 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 thinking like that 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 you have this is one of the Bible's prime metaphors for the human and divine breach for the Israel and divine breach or covenant is that kind of promise of faithful loyal love. I promised you, you promised me we're sticking with each other. And this will be interesting if, if we, when we get to talking about all the, the harsh tochecha stuff in a few minutes, it'll be interesting to hold that in mind, uh, that, that, that uh, indelible promise. I, I love the fact that this is the culminating um, motif or the phrase in that beautiful that's 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 just that's such a, a high part of the paper and in, in in my shul people sing it with such such intensity yeah, and yeah. it's really going to be quite absent my chazan made a beautiful what they call virtual choir video of members singing but it's 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 really great 
And it's nah, not quite the same. We're going to miss it a lot. The pathos of this experience this, this year is going to be the joy and the tears. You know, we need to confront the, you know, accept this, that, that this is, you know, I, I, as I said, just having experienced the, you know, great Simcha, part of what made it such a joyful Simcha is that it was so sad. <laughs> the, the closest people in our lives, you know, get there. It was, you know, we, we love it, but we're sad. <laughs> Well, that's a nice segue to the blessings and the curses, Elliot. I got one more. I got one more, which is uh, 2710. 2710. What is, this is one of my favorite verses, okay? Uh, Moses says with the Levitical priests, El kol Yisrael, to all the people, Hasket Ushma Yisrael, listen. And, or Hasket means shh, be quiet. Ushma Yisrael, listen, Israel. Whenever I want to teach um, the rabbinic uh, drash, ideas connected to drash, how, how uh, rabbis interpret and make plays on words, this is one of my favorite examples because uh, the Talmud says, Hasket, which we would say silence, cut yourselves up about Divrei Torah, and then it says, uh, because Torah is only acquired through people who really, really labor on it. Um, and then it's Asu uh, Kitot, a play on the word Hasket, Asu Kitot, meaning make yourselves little groups, little groups like ours. Asu Kitot v'iskuba Torah, make little groups and delve in Torah. And here we can be emotional about this, right? The Torah is only acquired in a group, in a group setting. I say it's emotional because most of the time, you know, we're, we're, we're working by ourselves. Here we have the joy of being together. And, and uh, there's nothing, I mean, I'll put the proposition out. There's nothing like Torah to build community. And there's, no, and there's nothing like community to hold the Torah. If you, if you think about, I mean, when we were when we were young and in school, uh, I don't I don't know if it's this way now. Maybe it's even worse now. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm just talking about the 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 modern, you know, electronic and and wired and wireless and uh, age that we're in. If you went to a library when I was in college, there were all these individual carols and people sat by themselves in a carol reading, you know, but. Jewish mode of studying is not by yourself in a silent library. Jewish mode of studying is with people yelling at each other. So <laughs> the, uh, the preciousness of that is, is really deep. So, and, and the fact that you don't have to be in person to do that. I mean, we're, we're doing it together. You know, we haven't seen each other in, 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 a, in over a year together, you know, really in person. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we have our, our, the way we play off of each other in this, <laughs> you know, I, 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 the only thing we're missing is the musty smell of the Sifria, that's all. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't figured out a way to get smell into I, movies. Whenever we sit down, I bring a can of air spray, you know. And <laughs> I could use some iced tea, though, if we can, if we can work that out. <laughs> this is the, so the joy of this, the joy, and, and the fact that the rabbis understand this pasuk in, in such a way with the plays on words and, and to, to develop uh, an idea which is, I think, is really one of the foundational ideas of, of rabbinic, rabbinic Judaism. Okay, let's talk about 
the, the core of this parsha, which is the blessings and curses. Um, if you don't do it, you're blessed. You're cursed. If you do do it, you're blessed. Um, I want to just you know let's highlight uh, one verse, which is the the the, the blessing. I mean, we'll, we'll, the curses we'll leave off for a second, but Baruch Atah Ba'ir Baruch Atah Vasadeh, etc. etc. Baruch Atah Bevoecha. Baruch atah b'tzeitecha. Blessed are you in the city, blessed are you in the country. Blessed are when you come in, blessed are you when you leave. Um, it's, it's a gorgeous blessing to the individual. Um, and um, it's something that, that I find has uh, functionality in the rabbinic context. You know, when people go on a journey, when people leave, or at different stations in a person's life. You know, if you, if you speak of people people's lives as, as having moved through different zones. So you move through a, a, a particular zone of your life, a period of your life, it's exit and entry, entry and exit. You know, Shmuel and I say Chavoecha. I don't know if you have any reactions to that, Barry. So uh, you spoke quite beautifully, Elliot, as you often do. What I would add is what strikes me about the city and the field is that there are two different kinds of people. Yeah. We have the city dweller and the farmer, town and gown, as it were. And they're both part of the same community. A lot of times we see them as being separate. We're going, you know, the guy from the field is coming into the city, and the guy from the city is going out into the field. So there's some kind of exchange of value, as it were. And, that, you know, one of the things that we strive for, I think, in religious life, is a kind of balance. We live in a world of polarities. We don't want to be too far on one side, too far on the other side. We want to grab onto the middle, which is what holds the two together. Your, your sense of movement here, I guess there's also a sense that, that you know, I, I, we, we are so used to travel and so used to driving and leaving. I mean, and Jeremy, you, you may be experiencing this much more because you live in a, in a city that mm -hmm. has to be accessed by tunnel and bridge. Uh, there is a sense that when you leave the city and when you enter the city, you are literally entering into a different zone. Do you ever think about this when, when you travel out of New York City or inside New York City? Uh, yeah, I think about it when I have to pay $20 admissions fee over the George Washington Bridge to get back in. Bless <laughs> it. Are you cursed when you leave? <laughs> no, see, it's, it's, it's such an attraction that people want to pay an admissions fee. But the, uh, you know, it, it, interesting to say, I mean, since we're talking about Bikurim and the pageantry with which people entered the city, bringing all of their hard work, it's, it's something to think about. And nowadays with, you know, this, when, when COVID was really heavy, uh, there was an enormous emptying out of the city as, frankly, afflu people affluent enough to have some other place to go. They all left. There are whole apartment buildings on the west side that, are, that are, were virtually empty. A lot more people back now. And this will be Labor Day weekend and maybe, maybe even more people come back. But I don't know. It's interesting to, th to think about. Um, I think that we go on, uh, the way I relate to these, you know, the blessings of leaving and coming, um, the blessings of beginning a project and concluding a project. Sure, sure. You know, good luck, pal. Go out there and, and do it. And, and we wish you luck when you start, when you, when you go out with nothing. And when you come back in with, with everything that you're carrying back, I think is, 
uh, is profound. All right, we got to talk about the tochacha, the rebuke, the the verses at the end of the parsha that that just are. Somebody's calling the phone. Let me let me stop them. Of, uh, of, of mute Jeremy for a second, and, and just um, Barry, uh, make sense, make some sense, or should we just should we just pause here? For a second? Well, it's a wonderful couple just had a baby. So the 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 sense of 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 um, just the overwhelming sense of, of terrible cursing. So, you were so I, I think what I want to draw attention to is that before we have this lengthy list of curses, we have this ceremony. We have half of the tribes on one mountain, half of the tribes on the other mountain. The tribes on one mountain are going to invoke a blessing to which everyone is going to respond to main, And the tribes on the other mountain are going to invoke a blessing uh, a curse, I mean, and everyone's going to say amen to that as well. And here we have a balance, right? Whatever is said on one mountain is a blessing. Whatever is said on the other is a curse. And they balance each other out. And then we have a short list of blessings and an incredibly long and powerful sense of curses. And I think it's a well-known human trait that we have a hard time magnifying the good in our life. But anyone who has a certain amount of time can tell you everything that's gone wrong for them that day, that we tend to magnify the curses. We tend to make things worse than they are sometimes. And Judaism especially, but I think it's true of all religion, is rooted in this idea of the attitude of gratitude, that we have to cultivate the blessings that are in the world. And frankly, maybe we should leave God to deal with the curses, but our focus should be on bringing blessing into the world. Jeremy, I want to note that... Um... And I, I didn't. I don't have the citation for this. Uh, I, I'm sure I could find it, but I don't have it at the top of my head, top of my tip of my tongue. But uh, the the curses in Leviticus um, are quite different than the curses in Devarim uh, in a couple of ways. One is quantity, and one is quality. In Leviticus, it is shorter, and it ends with the explicit promise that God will remember the land and remember the covenant. In Deuteronomy, the curses are quantitatively longer, and they end on a terrible note, okay? Um, it's, it's as bad as can be. It's, it's just awful. The story, which has been about the people released from slavery, ends up with, you're going back to Egypt, and you'll be in a slave market, and you'll be so pathetic that no one will even buy you. Okay, that's as pathetic as it gets. Let me, let me read the verse. The Lord will send you back to Egypt in galleys by a route which I told you you should not see again. There you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but none will buy. I mean, that's awful. And the, uh, the, 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 a key word in Devarim, which is not in Leviticus, is ad hishmidcha, until you're destroyed. So... In a contrast to what we said before about the the he'emarta, the he'emircha, you you made God promise, God made you promises of loyal love. This, this one seems just pretty bad, and and it doesn't have that little bit of nechama at the end that Leviticus had, of doesn't have that little note of comfort that Leviticus had that, that in the end God will restore it. And it's strange for a number of reasons. One of which is that Deuteronomy is the book of tshuva. Deuteronomy is the book that says if you get scattered to the four winds of heaven, ubikashtem yishamu matzata. You know, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll search God out with all your heart and with all your soul, no matter where you've been exiled, and then you will find God and you will reconcile. So that is Deuteronomy in general, but it doesn't appear here 
in, in Deuteronomy 28, it appears here, here is pretty relentlessly bad. So the, the source that I was trying to remember, but I don't have it to my hand, fingertips, is that um, obviously traditional Judaism kind of holds that, that God wrote the whole Torah, but it also kind of holds that Moses is the author of De Deuteronomy. It's speaking in Moses's first person voice in a way that God is more clearly the author of, of Leviticus and the other books. And the, the Drash says something like, when the divine mercy speaks, when the divine voice speaks, there's more mercy. But the human voice doesn't quite have that sense of mercy. So Barry points out that we can sometimes, um, you know, magnify our own sorrow and we can whine and we can always tell you how bad everything is. And sometimes it's harder to re recognize the good as well as the bad. And sometimes our punishments, our image of punishment is worse. Is that we just we have to we have to throw the book at him and we got to throw him in jail and we got to punish them with with relentlessness when when the divine is actually a source of more mercy. Right. It's interesting. There's a there's a midrash that speaks about you know what is the what does what does Chachma say about sin? What does what do the prophets say about sin? So the 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 the, the wisdom literature says sin makes you you know is evil. The prophets say you've sinned, you're going to die. What does God say about or Torah, what does Torah say about sin? Bring an asham, bring a sin offering. What does God say? Do tshuva. Do tshuva. <laughs> do some repentance. Do, you know, look into yourself because you don't have to be that harsh. So I, this is a longer, longer conversation, but, but, you know, this is theologically difficult for us. This, yeah. These passages are difficult. Especially, especially after the Shoah, there's, there's a story about... Um, uh, the Kloisenberger Rav, there's, there's a thing, his name was Yekutiel Halberstam, who, there's a tradition of reading the Tokicha, undertone, fast, get it over with, it's like you're too afraid to, you're too afraid to really confront the, the horribleness of it, um, and so you read it really fast in an undertone, and the Kloisenberger Rav, who had been uh, in the camps, who had, had his, his wife and children all killed, subsequently, you know, after the war, um, re had a new family and more children. These Eov Mamash, the truly Joe, um, insisted on having the Tokacha read loud and clear because he had been through the Shoah and, you know, um, the, the Tokacha, it's the, the, the lines about eating the flesh of your children, it's just unbelievably awful. And I think confronting it is hard. I'm, I'm not really one for the whole you know, follow the Torah or God is going to punish you thing. But I think that the recognition that in this partial blessing, where you are grateful for your blessings and you bring the, the fruit that you have grown and you are grateful for it, totally, I got it. Blessed are you in the city. Blessed are you in the field. Blessed are you going out. Blessed are you coming back. It doesn't always work that way. And you have to sometimes confront the horror of how it goes back. In the Madrich, I think it says that the, the tradition of reading it uh, in, in softly is, is, is the dominant tradition. There's the, it's from the Vilna Gaon that said, was said that you should read it in the same tone. But, you know, uh, uh, certainly the beautiful story that you told just um, evokes this, you know, that, that I need to hear it. I need to, I need to know this so that I can, my presence vindicates. It's my presence here is a testimony uh, to this. We, we don't live in the Tochacha, though. And that, that's the thing. We, we live, in a sense, uh, you know, removed from the Tochacha. Um, it's there to, to, to shake us, but, but we live in, in God's mercy. We live in God's love. We live in the, in the sense that, that 
there's always a door open for us. And maybe, you know, in these weeks leading up to Rosh Hashanah, of course, we're going to talk about Tshuva, but maybe there's a sense that, that here, uh, given the place that this uh, Parsha has in the calendar, okay, so, so we're, getting, we're getting whipped a little bit here in the Tochachah. And set that aside. What's the goal here? The goal is come back, come back. Do a little tshuva. Come close. You know, that's a good way to 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 conclude our time here, which which uh, is all about chavura. Ena Torah niknet ella bechavura. That uh, we are the living example, a living example of how we can uh, share Torah in a group, in a small group, and uh, be a chavruta. So with that. So I would just add here, Elliot, that in order for us to do Shuva properly, we shall return next week. Yes, we will. Okay. So, Shabbat Shalom, everyone, from the Parsha Talk. We love you. See you soon.